Coming up this evening, an entity business. A win for online retail giant Amazon. Workers in New York City vote against unionizing a second warehouse, dealing a blow to labor union organizers. Billionaire Warren Buffett discusses his new investments. What are they and why did he choose them? We ask a Berkshire expert. Former President Trump's Truth Social app launching on a web browser soon, allowing access from any device. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Amazon employees at a New York City warehouse today voted against unionizing. It's a win for Amazon, which fought against the unionizing efforts. Anthony's Arian Pastor has more from New York. Last month, Amazon employees in Staten Island formed Amazon's very first labor union in the U.S. This week, the second union could have formed, but most employees voted against it in a 60-40 outcome. Progressive caucus members such as Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez rallied with Amazon's labor union in Staten Island ahead of the vote. Nevertheless, no victory for the union. The union's leader says New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the U.S. and the cost of living is only going up with inflation. He wants a wage increase from $18 an hour to $30 an hour. Also, more breaks and benefits. You can't raise wages arbitrarily in the way that they're demanding and not have a consequence someplace else. Wayne Weingarten is a senior fellow with the Pacific Research Institute. He says union efforts, such as wage increases, can make it less profitable for businesses to operate, which might end up hurting the locations where unions were formed. If you look at car manufacturers, right, when a lot of the new plants came in, especially foreign manufacturers who wanted to, to build in the U.S., they didn't go to Detroit, which had you know, it, it had a really strong kind of presence in terms of manufacturing, had the expertise, but the unionization made it too difficult to actually build profitably. When the nation's first Amazon union formed a month ago, Amazon objected the result, saying Amazon's labor union intimidated employees, making them vote in favor of the union. In a statement to NTD, the union's lawyer denies that and claims the opposite saying Amazon is the only party with the capacity to intimidate potential voters. Amazon can and has threatened voters with loss of employment, lower wages and generally worse working conditions if they vote for the union. The union now has one week to file an objection to the result, similar to how Amazon objected the vote last month. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. And the labor union's lawyer just told NTD the union is in fact considering filing objections. It says Amazon pressured and coerced employees into voting against unionizing. We'll keep you updated. And investing legend Warren Buffett gave new details on Berkshire Hathaway Investments. It was during the company's annual shareholder meeting over the weekend. Berkshire has been sitting on tens of billions of dollars of cash with Buffett, lamenting the lack of investment opportunities. But they found some in March. Berkshire bought nearly 15% of Occidental Petroleum, one of the largest oil and gas producers. It also agreed to buy insurer Allegheny for about $12 billion. So what was behind Buffett's decisions? Simple. He turned to Occidental after reading an analyst report, and to Allegheny after its chief executive, who once headed a Berkshire subsidiary, wrote to him. It also upped its stake in Activision Blizzard, a computer games company, nearly sixfold. Buffett also compared today's stock market to a casino and said Bitcoin is useless.
Meeting was held in downtown Omaha, Nebraska. Tens of thousands of investors packed into the arena. It was, in fact, Berkshire's first shareholders meeting in person since the pandemic. Buffett said it, quote, really feels good to talk to shareholders in person. With us live as one of those shareholders, Professor Lawrence Cunningham. Cunningham has also written many books about Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, including Margin of Trust. Professor, thank you. Nice to be here. Professor, how was the general feeling among shareholders about Berkshire's progress? Upbeat and enthusiastic. Uh, the performance has been quite strong, uh, especially in the operating businesses. There, some of the stock portfolio may have lagged a little, but pe people don't usually focus on that, uh, you know, quarter by quarter uh, or even year by year. And they were upbeat to see each other again. As you know, we hadn't been together in uh, two two sessions, uh, two years. And uh, so to have that kind of um, gathering is a, is a real uh, bonding event. I mean, that's why Warren has had the meeting all these years to, to bring everybody together. And so that in itself was, was something to celebrate. What was the big talking point? Uh, I think it's um, the, a couple of the points that, that you've raised, the significant deployment of capital in the first quarter in both public equities um, with, with Occidental in particular. Um, and Activision and, and the, the, the purchase of, of Allegheny uh, Corporation, which is a, um, a mini Berkshire, it really is, uh, you know, it's an insurance underwriter, it generates abundant float, and then it, it deploys that float by in a merchant investment business. So they own a dozen different operating subsidiaries that are managed along the same lines that Berkshire is. And so um, I think that, that, that idea that, you know, Berkshire is open for business, uh, Warren Buffett's in the saddle, uh, was a common theme of conversations all around Omaha. What was Buffett's assessment of the economy? Well, I think, you know, he, we've seen it before. It goes uh, in in cycles. Uh, we're obviously in an inflationary period with uh, rate rates likely to rise. And, um, you know, but I think the, the instant caveat that he places on macroeconomic assessments like that or that it doesn't really influence his uh, fundamental analysis of businesses. I mean, it, it is nice to have a company that has, uh, you know, pr pricing power and an ability to, to pass through uh, inflationary costs. And so there's some slight influence on on investment selection. Uh, but he he tend to be around those kinds of companies anyway. So it doesn't make a big uh, big difference in in his analysis. That's incredible. So no major worries at Berkshire about the inflation we're seeing. No, I don't. I mean, there, other than the, the, the standard worry that uh, any kind of uh, macroeconomic uh, headwinds can can cause difficulties in a business. And so there will be some adverse effects on some of the units. Um, but they're 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 run by savvy uh, managers who have, in a lot of cases, anticipated uh, inflation through forward purchase agreements for ingredients and supplies and so on. So. I don't. It, it did not sound to me like this. This was a the, a high source of concern at 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 the Berkshire level or or at the operating companies, at least the ones that I talked to. Did he hint at what he may invest in next? Uh, no, other than the 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 references to the gambling or casino like atmosphere in equity markets does signal as, as much as they were criticizing it and in a way complaining about it. And and you know uh, lamenting the fact that a lot of young people in particular have seemed to got uh, a bug for for buying and selling stocks very quickly as if as if they are 
in a casino, besides being sort of chagrined about that for society, I guess, it creates enormous opportunities for for, for stock pickers. I mean, th th that will produce deviations from price between price and value, and that's what creates opportunities for for Berkshire. So, uh, you know, on on your specific question, he didn't signal any particular sector, industry, or company, but he never does. You know, he's got a completely opportunistic um, approach, and if he identified a good business at a or a, a very good business at a at a good price, you you should expect him to. Take advantage of that. Absolutely. Professor Lawrence Cunningham, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And former President Donald Trump's Truth Social app will launch on a web browser at the end of May, according to CEO Devin Nunes. After that, he said they'll launch an Android app. That's if Google approves it. Truth Social's parent company launched with the mission of protecting freedom of expression. Truth Social app launched in the Apple App Store in February for a time. It was the most downloaded free app there. Its parent company is planning to go public to raise funds through a merger with a blank check firm. But that'll likely take months to finalize. And two of the richest men in the world are toying with the idea of using cryptocurrency to do away with spam bots on Twitter. Anthony's Phil Zoe has the story. Star of Shark Tank and billionaire Mark Cuban suggested we use Dogecoin, a meme cryptocurrency, to battle spam bots on Twitter. Elon Musk, the richest person in the world and soon to be owner of Twitter, said the suggestion was not a bad idea. Yeah, I think Mark Cuban, his idea was probably a little bit half-baked. Brian Horning is a cybersecurity expert who deals with many issues, including spam. What he laid out is kind of like an eBay-ish kind of honor system. Cuban suggested everyone contributes one Dogecoin in order to post unlimited tweets. But if anyone challenges a tweet and a human being confirms that the tweet is indeed spam, the challenger wins the Dogecoin. But if it's not spam, the challenger will lose his Dogecoin. Where I think there's some holes is you could have groups of people who band together offline to maybe team up against somebody to make their spam report um, seem not real or not be approved. Elon Musk recently said spam bots are the single most annoying problem on Twitter. So far, Mark Cuban's post has been liked 10,000 times. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And the company behind the famous Bored Ape NFTs is now taking it a step further by creating an entire metaverse. Yuga Labs is carving up its new virtual world into 55,000 pieces of land, which were all sold out after it was released just a couple days ago. That totals to over $200 million worth of virtual real estate sold. Just a year ago, the company released its Bored Ape NFT collection, which skyrocketed in popularity, garnering fans from crypto enthusiasts to celebrities. NFTs are non-fungible tokens basically like a crypto asset that can represent anything from images to videos or art. A group of Bitcoin miners and crypto industry experts are challenging what they consider information misperceptions by Representative Jared Huffman and 22 other members of Congress. It started with a letter sent to Chief of the Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Reagan, asking him to ensure mining com companies are in compliance with the Clean Air and Clean Waters Act. Letter claimed that crypto mining is polluting communities and contributing to greenhouse emissions. 
Some of Bitcoin's most prominent names and companies, including Jack Dorsey, Michael Saylor, Benchmark Capital, and Fidelity Investments, have sent a rebuttal letter to the EPA, correcting what they claim are misperceptions, like confusing data centers with power generation facilities. The letter disputed several other items as well. And the Disinformation Governance Board is making many people concerned. Many are calling it the, quote, Ministry of Truth. It's a fictional propaganda department from George Orwell's 1984 book, if you've read it. Anthony's fake quarter has more. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas says his new DHS panel will not be used to monitor Americans, he told CNN on Sunday. No, 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 the board does not have any operational authority or capability. Mayorkas announced last week the creation of the Misinformation Disinformation Governance Board, which will, quote, address the threat of disinformation from foreign adversaries. At this point, we're still not sure what this disinformation board is going to do. Andrew Selipak is a social media professor at the University of Florida. Selipak says many are concerned about the board. For example, what will determine misinformation? How will it address the alleged misinformation? Will it influence social media companies? A lot of people are concerned right now. They're wondering if this means the federal government is going to start trying to regulate, you know, speech and determining what is, you know, what is true and what is false. Joshua Phillip is the host of Epoch TV's Crossroads. Phillip says this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right now, as we speak, the, the Department of Homeland Security has already created this. They call it the MDM team. That's misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation team, which is already in effect under CISA, C-I-S-A. And already they're going after what they call misinformation. Republicans are comparing the board to the Ministry of Truth, a fictional ministry in George Orwell's book, 1984. The Ministry of Truth was essentially the propaganda wing of the government and was used to kind of recreate past events to influence current events. Literally in that book that a lot of people reference at times like this, it was about the government's ability to control the flow of information, the government's ability to change the information that people were receiving and to influence them. Mayorkas addressed it in the CNN interview. Those criticisms are precisely the opposite of what this small working group within the Department of Homeland Security uh, will do. On Monday, Senator Josh Hawley tweeted, if Joe Biden won't dissolve his unconstitutional disinformation board, Congress should. I will introduce legislation this week to eliminate the board and forbid the government ever to create another one. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Strong words. And the latest news in the Disney versus DeSantis saga. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says Disney will have to pay its own debts, of which it has over $1 billion. DeSantis revoked Disney's special governing status last month, so Disney will no longer have its own little government in Florida. But the company also has $1 billion in debt, and it says the state will have to pay it if their status is rescinded. In the Fox News town hall, DeSantis disagreed. He said there will be additional legislative action, and that Disney, for the first time, will actually have to live under the same laws as everybody else in Florida. And U.S. factory activity in April grew, but at its slowest pace in nearly two years, according to a survey from the Institute for Supply Management. One possible reason, virus lockdowns in China. ISM said some manufacturers are worried about whether their Asian partners can deliver reliably this summer. 
This is the second month's decline in a row. It reflects spending rotating back to services like travel, dining, and recreation. Government data released Friday showed that in March, consumer spending on services increased by the most in eight months. So, good news. Not good news for construction spending, though. It barely rose in March, just a tenth of a percent, quite a bit below expectations. So with us is Nicole Walter, CEO at HM Manufacturing. Walter also sits on the board of National Association of Manufacturers. Nicole, thank you. Thanks. Does it feel like there is a recession coming on the ground? You know, that's a great question. Um, a lot of my colleagues and I are kind of starting to think that way. Um, just because we've seen the GDP reports come out and we were at a negative loss um, is kind of a scary thought. But are you seeing it in demand? Um, not really. You know, what I think is happening is you see a scaling of demand, but capacity is not able yeah. to keep up. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing those numbers. I'm still very busy. We're still working 50-hour weeks. Um, I just hired two more people. So we keep growing. We keep increasing our output. But we're, it's just not enough right now in terms of capacity. Demand is there which is a great thing. Um, we're still doing a lot with the semiconductors. That is still ever-growing. Um, I do see that the defense contracts, though, are starting to slow down. So that could be indicative of some issues going forward. But for right now, in terms of food processing, beverage, packaging, we're really starting to see an uptick. I think on the consumer side, at least, it looks like inflation is starting to dent demand at least a little bit. But say we do go into recession and demand falls, will prices necessarily fall with it? I don't think so. Um, this whole year, we've seen an increase in wages, and that's here to stay, along with uh, material costs that have gone up, surcharges. I know I've talked about previously with um, suppliers. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon unless we start to see somewhat of a reset. And I think that's going to not be until maybe 2023, maybe 2024. I think finally, how are uh, hiring? How, how's getting people to work for you? Um, this past month has been wonderful. Um, we've had a, a nice resurgence of seeing more people kind of come through and, and look for jobs and wanting to stay in the job sector. Um, I think also raises has been a great uh, contributor to getting people back as well. Um, and because the demand's there, we need more people. And so I've been seeing more people come for interviews, which has been great. Like I said, I hired two more people. And uh, we've got a, a full house for once. So that's been really exciting. Good to hear. Nicole Walter, HM Manufacturing. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. And China isn't getting so much foreign investment as it used to. Is the country losing its shine in the eyes of investors? Did he start Ma has more? The decrease in foreign investment comes after the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, tightened requirements for Chinese companies wanting to list on the New York Stock Exchange. Investor and CEO of tech firm Capture, Bob Bilbrook, says that this is expected. I think any time the SEC kind of tightens the requirements like that, it throws uh, investors into a panic. Um, that it just seems less safe, right? Investors like predictability. The latest report by the Zero Two IPO Research Center, a top venture capital and private equity research firm in China, shows that foreign investment in China fell 60% in Q1 this year compared to last year. 
and a significant portion of the decrease is in Chinese startup companies. Without foreign support, it's hard for these companies to develop into something bigger. It's going to impede growth. Basically, it takes money to it takes. You know, we always call it the money for startups that make the fire burn hotter in, in a startup. And without that funding or the mass amounts of that funding, their tech startups or any kind of startup that comes out of China is going to be affected by that. Bill Brook predicts that foreign investment in China will only decrease going forward. And without foreign investment, we could be seeing fewer Chinese startups turning into the Alibabas of the future. Because foreign investment plays a huge factor in their development. I think today it's a huge factor because of Wall Street being pretty much the the biggest deployment deployer of that capital. But right now, Wall Street funds a lot of the growth around the world. Bill Brooks says China's loss of foreign investment is also due to its COVID lockdowns and its silence on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Don Ma, NTD News. So China may be losing foreign investment, but here's a tip. If you're in China, don't talk about it. Your social media accounts could be banned. So what happened to the managing director of the investment arm of China's Bank of Communications, the big bank in China. He posted about huge outflows of capital from the country and made bearish forecasts on social media about the Chinese stock market. And soon after, his WeChat account was frozen and his Weibo account, Think Twitter, which had 3 million followers, was deleted. Freedom of speech? And still to come, Nike is releasing a shoe to honor Kobe Bryant's daughter on what would have been her 16th birthday. And Qantas Airlines inking its biggest deal ever, betting on a new non-stop flight from Australia to Britain. Data more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Nike has released a pair of special shoes in honor of Gianna Gigi Bryant on what would have been her 16th birthday. She and her father, legendary basketball star Kobe Bryant, were killed in a 2020 helicopter crash along with seven others. The Mamba Cita Sweet 16 shoes have a black snakeskin pattern and profits from sales are earmarked for the Mamba and Mamba Cita Sports Foundation. It's a nonprofit that honors the legacies of Gigi. Gigi and Kobe by supporting underserved athletes. According to the foundation, these shoes sold out within two minutes. Gianna Bryant had dreamed of becoming a WNBA player. And Qantas Airways is launching the world's longest non-stop commercial flight from Sydney to London and has picked up a dozen Airbus jets for the ride. CEO Alan Joyce announcing the multi-billion dollar project just today. This is a big day for Qantas. It's a big day for Australian aviation. I think it's a big day for world aviation. Uh, Today, Qantas is making the biggest aircraft order in its history. Qantas shares surged to their highest in months in response to the news. It comes as Australian airline predicted. Strong recovery in the domestic market. 
That's a bit signs of a comeback in international travel too. Qantas planes will have around 100 fewer seats than rivals British Airways and Cathay Pacific, but they'll have extra premium seating. Non-stop flights from Sydney to London are set to kick off late 2025. And more than 25 nations are presenting sustainable ideas during this year's Flory Odd Show in the Netherlands. The theme? Growing green cities with countries blending the old and the new. Andries Andrew Thomas has more. This new university building in the Netherlands has plants growing on one of its walls. This is Floriade, a once-in-a-decade Dutch horticultural exhibition. The countries show their examples of the theme of the, of the exhibition, which is growing green cities and has a, a lot of sub-themes like healthying the city, greening the city, healing the city and energizing the city. The event showcases horticultural innovations that can make urban areas more sustainable and healthier. The site itself is in line with the theme of the event. It's built on land reclaimed from the sea decades ago. The event is a melting pot of ideas, traditions and techniques. And what I like very much is that China has taken the trouble to, to do not something traditional, but to use a traditional material, bamboo, for very modern developments. And amid a Dutch affordable housing crisis, the Floriade terrain is anticipated to become a new urban area of 3,000 homes after the expo ends on October 9th. The plants are, are moderated still, but uh, then it becomes a very, very nice green area to live in. All the trees remain here, uh, all the green, the green grit as we call it, remains green. So yes, it must be a great place to live. Floriade expects to welcome two million visitors as the displays shift through the seasons from springtime to summer and autumn. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. That's the latest from the NTD business team of myself, Paul Graney. Can't still catch NTD evening news. That's with Stephanie Cox at 6 to p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter too if you're there. For NTD business, that's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.